HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Capri Cafaro, host of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm excited to announce a special series of episodes that highlight individuals that are both involved in agriculture and identify as part of the LGBTQIA community. In this series of three episodes, we meet an agriculture educator in Michigan, flower farmers in Iowa, and a fifth-generation dairy, grain, and beef farmer in North Dakota. Agriculture is becoming increasingly more inclusive thanks to the leadership of people like our guests. For the second episode in this series, I'd like to introduce Glenn Philbrick of Hiddendale Farm in North Dakota. Glenn, thanks for joining Eat Your Heartland Out. Thank you, Capri. I'm happy to be here. You're coming to us from the Dakotas, um, and it's a place that you grew up. And, uh, you know, you have, you know, agriculture has been part of your life for, for a long time. Um, why don't we start there? Um, tell us about your life growing up on the farm. So I grew up, I live on the farm I grew up. It is situated between Turtle Lake and Washburn, North Dakota. Um, this was a dairy farm for most of my life. And so, um, I grew up with milk cows. Uh, my grandmother, who lived with us, had chickens when I was uh, young. Um, and so I had the privilege to eat everything we produced, including the milk, the the eggs, the chicken, the beef, uh, lots of garden produce, and much garden produce that was either frozen or canned. Um, and you know, years have gone by. The, the operation has changed somewhat, but but I, I take pride in in maintaining uh, my quality of life around food. I like that quality of life around food. Now you grew up on this farm, um, but um, did you stay in the area, or did you decide to come back to it? I, I've always had my hands in there because I attended college at Minot State, which is only about an hour and fifteen minute drive away. Um, and that I work in education. Um, and, and so I, I'm currently speaking from Standing Rock, um, roughly about an hour 55 minutes away. And uh, so driving has always been a part of my life. 
And <laughs> um, so I can teach and I farm. So I have the best of both worlds. You certainly do. Uh, those are two great cookie jars to have your hands in, all kinds of mixed metaphors right now. Um, so it started off as a dairy farm. Uh, you said that, that it's changed a bit over the years. What do you produce now? So right now it is a beef cow-calf operation, uh, and the cattle graze, so it's they're, they're grass-fed for the most part, and that I have some acres that are certified organic, where in addition to growing some things for you know, household consumption, I grow certified organic vegetable and flower seed. And what made you choose, you know, these lines of agriculture, uh, vegetable seeds, and then, you know, the uh, beef? The, the beef, of course, I grew up with. So I've always worked around cows. Uh, even though it's not a, a dairy, I still have some milk cows. So I have milk for myself and cream, um, in addition to having beef. But I appreciate having that always available to me. Um, seed I got into because for me it was an, an opportunity to do something related to organic agriculture. You operate the organic portion of the farm, um, but not all of it is organic. Uh, what parts are certified organic and, and what's not? The Everything where the seeds, uh, the seeds come off of is certified organic. Uh, there's also rangeland that is certified organic uh, because I'm beginning to get into wild flowers, such as uh, Echinacea angusifolia, uh, prairie rose, prairie coneflower, the prairie turnip. Uh, th- uh, this is here. It's always been there. It grows. And I thought, well, there, there's not... Uh, a, the availability of some of these organically isn't really there. Um, Echinacea, yes, but the others, not so much. And I mm-hmm. thought, well, this is a good opportunity. Plus... It's there. I enjoy looking at them. Uh, I was just out on the pasture last night, and it's it's wonderful to see all of these wildflowers in bloom. I bet it's beautiful. Yes, yes. Um, the the this is a a really good year for echinacea and uh, prairie coneflower um, and Maximilian sunflower. What would the end use be for some of these things? I mean, I think we you know most people are familiar with echinacea as you know kind of a supplement that I think helps. Uh, with the immune system, if I'm not mistaken. But what about some of these others? You know, what would be the end use for them? Or would, or are they just kind of part and parcel of, uh, you know, kind of the organic approach to the land use in general? Part of the use is this is part of a diverse ecosystem that already exists. But for some mm-hmm. places, they want to reestablish them. There are also home gardeners who want this part of, of their garden. Right. So then you would transplant these then? Correct. Or people okay. could, could begin growing by seed, but both are an option. Mm-hmm. The prairie turnip is um, very important to tribes of the Northern Great Plains. Um, mm. One of my relatives, um, grandfather's first cousin who lived where I live, um, been passed away 22 years ago. As a child, his parents would send him out in the pasture to dig up the prairie turnip, and his mom would make cookies from them. Oh, wow. And so that was my, um, as, as a teenager, um, one of my first, you know, intimate exposures to native plants, cause my cousin was in Minnesota and he said, Hey, we always dug this up and we, he, he drew it out for me and, 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 um, then I found it. So when he came out, um, we went out in the pasture, we dug it up and then we brought it in the house and ate it. Well, I mean, I, I think this is a great example of how land holds memories. Yes. You know, it's and and so much of 
you know, your story is, and I think your commitment and joy in agriculture and raising the food that you eat and sharing that with others is, is part of your upbringing. Um, and we had a, an earlier conversation about this off air. Um, but I, I found it really interesting about how some of the, the ethnic influences also play a part in, um, what you make as well. Um, why don't you share some of that? Yes, uh, you know, probably the larger influence on me um, ethnic-wise was my paternal grandmother who lived on the farm with us. Uh, she passed away when I was 19. Uh, so she is um, first-generation American. Um, her, par- her parents immigrated from uh, what's now Ukraine. Uh, her dad was a German Jew from what's in Odessa. And... So I, I could see German influence and some Jewish influence in some of the foods. And one of them that I have very fond, two that I have very fond memories of is the grandma called it I Naka Naka soup. I, of course, is translates to egg. Um, this uses pickling spices that you boil, then strain the juice into a kettle, and you keep doing that until about all the flavors out of the spices. That is your broth. And then you take eggs with some flour uh, but mix it so it's really runny. Take that whisk, and in the boiling broth, you whisk it out, and it becomes just little mini dumplings. That's one of my fond memories of grandma, and that's ethnically important. I know that the Germans like to claim that, but it's got pickling spices. That's more of a Jewish thing, um, which, <laughs> which unfortunately for for her side, for my great grandfather, they 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 tried to conceal that. Um, mm. And after long after my grandma passed away, her sisters shared some information from me with me. It's like, oh, uh, yeah, they were, there were hard times. They had to get out while the getting was good. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but one of these foods is really important to me. Another one that's important to me is in German, it's called Kessnefla, uh, in English, cheese buttons. And there's various recipes. What I have fond memories of grandma cooking, and I've did this myself, is take the dry curd cottage cheese, which is easy to make. I milk cows. I make cottage cheese. Um, and you mix a little bit of egg with that, black pepper, chives, and then the dough is just a, a simple water and flour together, and you roll it out and put spoonfuls of the cottage cheese on there and wrap it up. And you have to put a little bit of water on the edges to seal it and boil it. And after that, you fry it to both sides in pork lard. Now, pork lard was really important to Grandma. Um, and I have to admit, it makes the best pie crust. Yeah. Um, and so this is a fond memory I have of my grandmother, and this is an ethnic food. Um, I've been to a German restaurant before, and they did serve that. You know, I love these stories because, you know, they these they show how much food like the land carries memories, preserves culture and tradition as well. And, you know, it, there is a significant, um, you know, German, Russian um, immigrant population that is settled in the plains, um, and it sounds like this is somewhat part of that story as well, which which I find interesting. Um, now, you canned your own beef, right? Which is kind of an antiquated thing, too. Yes. In addition to freezing, uh, I do can beef, which is a, a you know, this does not meet, um, I suppose, you know, food standards. But, you know, we've always did this at home, which was using quart jars or pint jars taking the select cuts of beef. You don't want tendons. You don't want fat. And using canning salt and black pepper, and it's a three-hour hot water bath. And it's sealed. Wow. And this is something you could eat 
as is or uses soup, but this is something that I grew up watching my mother and grandmother do, and I carry on that tradition as well. We've also canned pork um, and chicken. And that's all basically for your own consumption, though? Yes. Now, what about the, what do you make for uh, for the general public? What kind of products do you put out um, that you sell um, off the farm? So I, I do have beef processed for retail sale, sales, primarily hamburger. Um, mm-hmm. And then a lot of beef is, of course, so most beef is sold in sales ring, but but I, I've used a licensed facility so I can sell direct to consumer. Uh, then I have my seed, and if I have excess carrots, onions, things like that, I sell those. That's a direct to consumer sale. Like at a farmer's market or something like that? That's actually the people I know because they oh, okay. they expect you know me to have good carrots or good onions, things like that. Mm-hmm. I, I suspect you do. I suspect if I were if I were one of your neighbors, I would be looking for you know your produce as well. Uh, now, one of the things that I found interesting um, in learning about you and your work is that you've gotten some research grants over the years, which we you know uh, you know certainly we know that the USDA gives out research grants for a variety of different things, but you don't necessarily hear about that. Uh, and I think that that's something that our listeners might want to know about. I've been the recipient of a USDA SARE grant uh, researching growing quinoa and amaranth in the Northern Great Plains and seeing if it was viable to grow, uh, what varieties could grow, and also what equipment does it take and market challenges. Um, so in 20, my first mm, attempt before the grant at quinoa was in 2012 in, in like a 100-foot row. And then in 2014 and 15, uh, with grant funding, I, I grew that. Uh, so I had a, a about a five-acre field of burgundy amaranth, uh, which would really stand out, and then quinoa. And so it can be grown here. It can be uh, planted with um, a few tweaks to a drill um, and combined. Huh. Do you still make that then? Do you still grow that um, after the grant, or was that really solely for demonstration purposes to see its viability um, in the, the upper plains? It was it was so for for viability, and then I uh, I grew again uh, in a garden plot for someone asked me to test out some varieties, and so I like to to challenge myself and grow something new every year, uh, and for those two years that was my my new thing. What's new in the next year or two for you? So right now uh, I I'm one of the contract growers for Row Seven Seed, and uh, the eight ninety eight squash is is well new to me. Um, so I'm anxious to see how that's going to turn out and taste. Um, Lodi is what I grew last year, and I'm growing that again for them. Um, so that's one of the new things I grow in the future. I do want to test um, bricks and plants. So bricks B R I X is sugar content. And I want to explore the relationship between soil and sugar content in some plants and what can be done to amend the soil through you know, adding something to the soil or a foliar spray, uh, spray to a plant that's OMRI approved, that's organically approved, uh, to raise the sugar content. Uh, insects don't like thing plants when they get over 12%. Um, so, for example, you know, I have wheat that's 15%. There's some grasshoppers around. They don't touch it. Um, I've had some other plants that have lower content, and they they like to eat that. So this is an opportunity to do research that can help both organic and conventional Hmm. farmers. That is really interesting. Well, that I can understand the the benefit of that for um, you know figuring out the sort of organic processes and and trying to basically almost have a uh, 
natural pest control element of increasing the sugar content to keep some of the pests from being attracted to it. But what about, you know, if you increase the sugar content and what does that mean for consumers that might be eating that or even livestock that might be eating something this feed? So generally, um, you know, if you're eating a carrot or squash with higher sugar, it usually means, you know, it probably will will be more appealing pellet-wise. Um, cattle, mm, I guess I, I've never seen my cows turn down, because I'm, I'm not out there grazing alfalfa or prairie grass, <laughs> but... Um, it, I think the higher the higher nutrition wise there is a benefit to the cattle, um, but taste wise I'm not sure they like what they like that that they do. But I don't know if it's going to make a big a big difference palate wise to the cattle. Hmm. Okay, good to know. I just you know I'm thinking you know people watch their sugar are concerned about sugar content and things, and you know if you're trying to increase it, I you know curious about what might you know what kind of impact they may, that may have on you know. Uh, a human or animal that might consume that. Um, that is so interesting. So would you get a grant for that as well? The I'm, I'm going to write a grant proposal this fall uh, to study that for the 2023 growing season. Interesting. So uh, since, since we're kind of on the topic of, you know, organic methodologies, for lack of a better term, as a layperson, um, what other kind of methods do you use that are organic when it comes to um, managing your soil, managing pests, um, you know, et cetera. I, I like to, for, for crops such as cucumbers or squash, uh, I like to use mulch and plant it into that because that may, retains moisture and is a weed suppressant. Uh, you know, if, if second cutting hay wasn't available, which is what you want for mulch because there's no seeds, um, there are plastics that are approved for organic farming that you you would mm. put down, cut your slit in and put your seeds in or, or transplant. Uh, another is crop rotation. And I use manure primarily for fertilizer. Uh, green manure could be in there too because some, some crops get, um, you know, plowed under one way or another. That That's helped my, keep my foil, my soil fertile. Um, crop rotation is very important. Cattle mm-hmm. are part of the operation. So at some point they go into the fields and they can you know, walk around, eat, um, you know, do what they do just as the buffalo did for, for thousands of years. Um, you know, I have in my soil profile, I have a field that's, um, I'm between five and 9% organic matter on my fields. Mm. And that's often unheard of in, in a lot of areas to be that yeah. high. And for that's, weed, that's, for weeds, that's impressive. You, weeds are an issue for everybody. It doesn't matter if you're organic, you're conventional, but your toolbox is a little bit different. Crop rotation does make a difference. Uh, winter rye planted in the fall is really good at, at keeping some weeds suppressed. Um, in rangeland, I, I've made a point to making sure things do not go to seed. So, for example, last night until dark, I was out in the pasture um, looking for wormwood to cut. I've been on top of this for several years, so I have some areas mm-hmm. where I no longer have that weed because I make sure it never seeds out. Because if it blooms, I cut it, it ends up in the burn pile. Um, so I, I learned many, many years ago as a teenager, I had some bad experiences with herbicides and realized one of them being that, oh, it doesn't work, um, at least on wormwood. Uh, and I, I saw resistance with some herbicides. And so 
I was, before being certified organic, I was doing a lot of things by organic standards already, just based on experiences. Um, and so de depleting the, the seed stock of certain weeds does help a lot. Um, rotational grazing, it makes a difference with certain weeds in rangeland as well. In fact, mm -hmm. I can see the difference in the ecosystem already. And I'm not the expert wow. on that. I'm going to throw a name out there. Uh, Gene Govan, he's, his name is out there. He's a Leopold uh, Conversa uh, Conservation Award winner. He's really good at, at um, conservation or rotational grazing. I certainly have learned something <laughs> new from all of this. That's a, you, you get a great appreciation of the technical aspects of agriculture and the added layer of um, organic practices. And, and I can tell you have a, a great amount of experience and appreciation for all of that. Before I let you go, I one other thing I want to, to bring up for our listeners is um, your involvement with um, aspects of food sovereignty um, as um, the Dakotas have a significant indigenous population. And it's my understanding that, you know, you've been in, engaged in, in some of those food sovereignty um, activities. Yes. So uh, besides agriculture, I'm one of the business instructors at Sitting Bull College located at Standing Rock. And there's um, been, Jennifer Martell has written some grants, uh, among others, regarding food sovereignty, or part of it is just educating. And so some of the educational classes they've had involve food preservation, uh, growing or cooking certain foods. So uh, I integrate a, a bit of that in some of my courses because that's important to everybody. Food sovereignty is is something that regardless of who you are, it should be important. We should know where our food is from, make sure it's adequate and, and you know, that it's good for us. Um, last spring, I taught a class on how to make sausage. Um, mm. th there were no leftovers when I was done. It, it all went home <laughs> with, with the participants. Um, coming up this fall, I have a Two different pickling classes, one with cucumbers, one with beets, uh, another class with squash. Uh, I, when we were in the pandemic and we were teaching over Zoom, um, I, I did a presentation on how to make apple butter and filmed it in my kitchen and it was uploaded for students to watch. Um, so I, I like to integrate this because a lot of these things, um, you know, you can get easy access to in the community here. And some people, this is something new for them on how to preserve food. Uh, unlike, you know, think of my grandparents' generation. This was, you know, everyday normal life. Um, my, my grandma had four freezers for a reason, and, and part of it was <laughs> they they knew what it was like to go without. Um, right. So that that's a tradition I carry on. I learned from my, my parents and, and grandparents. Um, but I like to share that with students as well and the community here at Standing Rock. That's great. And I, it sounds like you have a lot of wisdom to impart. Um, you, what a great, what a great story. And, um, it, you know, I think there's obviously going to be more to come, uh, from you and your work there in, in North Dakota. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Eat your heartland out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.